You're listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, a weekly show about current events in the world of carbon removal, from technology and innovation to policymaking and job growth. Brought to you by Nori, the carbon removal marketplace. Hello, and welcome to this week's edition of Carbon Removal Newsroom. My name is Asa Kamer. I'm normally the producer of the show, but since unfortunately we don't have our regular host Radhika with us today, I'm going to be taking over for the week. And we have uh, we're going to do two segments today. We're going to do it a little differently. In the first segment, I'm going to be speaking with our regular panelist Naim Merchant about some big doings over in Europe related to their carbon price, which went over 100 euros a ton for the first time. And that's the result of some recent policy changes, and we're going to get into that. And we're also going to have a second segment today, and we're actually going to be speaking with a representative of the Department of Natural Resources in Alaska, their Deputy Commissioner, John Crowther. And we're going to be talking about um, a package of legislation that Alaska's Governor Mike Dunleavy has proposed related to carbon management that includes some pretty sophisticated policy for both what we might call natural and technological solutions related to carbon removal. So that should be pretty interesting. I can't recall the last time we had an actual government official on the show. Um, So that I think will be hopefully quite informative and interesting discussion. But to start things off, Naeem and I are going to get into it on the price of carbon over in Europe. So uh, welcome, Naeem. How are you? I'm doing well, Lisa. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, thank you for being here. So can you tell us a little bit about what's going on with the compliance carbon market over in the EU? Yeah, and I think as you kind of referenced earlier, the past you know several days, we've seen the EU carbon price, which is um, based on the European Union's um, emission allowance contract, has climbed above 100 euros or above over 100 US dollars a ton for the first time. Um, and so this all kind of refers to allowances that are traded under the EU's uh, compliance market, their emissions trading system. And, you know, these emissions contracts, you know, they launched in uh, in 2005, I believe. And so this is the highest that they've ever traded. So, you know, there are a lot of reasons for this increase. I think you referenced, you know, policy changes. I know that there were some agreements made. Uh, in recent years uh, around reforming the system that I think resulted in a bit of a rush by companies to buy credits to cover last year's emissions based on some of these kind of recent carbon market refer- reforms. But we, you know, we generally have seen the, the, uh, the price of uh, the price on carbon, at, uh, you know, on a, on a per ton basis based on these allowances trend upward in recent years, though I, I should point out that, that it has fluctuated significantly. There's been increases and then sharp decreases soon after, um, but but have directionally kind of moved higher and higher, and that's kind of how this is supposed to work. Uh, and so it's it's kind of now surpassed a, an important psychological barrier of, you know, 100 euros a ton. Um, and so I think that that's an important kind of price point um, for people to anchor on that will, I think, incentivize companies in the EU block to uh, accelerate their decarbonization efforts. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to recognize that this is great uh, for kind of thinking about carbon pricing, and it is an important psychological barrier that's been kind of um, surpassed 
uh, but this is a price uh, that has significantly fluctuated in the past. So it's not clear how long these prices, uh, the, the carbon price uh, at this point will will remain at this level. Uh, but like I said before, um, you know, it's, it's been trending upward, which I think will will have an important impact on on how EU industry thinks about um, decarbonization. Right. And I think my big takeaway reading about this is that, you know, the, 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 this market is set to eventually expire or the available credits are set to expire. And based on some recent decisions, I think in the past few years, partly because of the um, EU lawmakers, you know, increasing their ambitions for getting to carbon neutral by 2050 and trying to do that even more quickly, is they're going to phase out the availability of these credits by 2038, which is 15 years from now. And so it's actually not that long that, you know, utilities that burn coal or companies that make steel or cement in uh, the European Union, they don't actually have that long to figure out how to be carbon neutral. Um, and especially, you know, I think you think about some of these industries, their sort of investment horizon is probably in that range, you know, 5, 10, 15 years, how long what they're planning is. And so, you know, I can't help but think, I, you know, I know there's a lot of detractors from systems like this, and I don't think that they're perfect. Um, and, you know, that's a conversation maybe we'll get into a bit, you know, the pros and cons of a system like this, but it really starts to feel like, you know, is there is there sort of a light at the end of the tunnel when it comes to at least one mod, you know, one region of the world figuring out how to have a carbon neutral economy? It seems like, you know, they're kind of serious about this. You know, it's not just empty plans. It's not just empty promises. They actually want to be carbon neutral by 2050. Companies are now paying. I mean, this is a real price to, to pay $110 US a ton um, to pollute CO2. And so, I mean, I kind of have to feel like, is the rubber hitting the road here a bit? Like, is a decarbonizing, decarbonization actually getting driven by this system? And are we going to start to see, you know, some real strides towards that in the next few years here? I think that's, I think that's the way I'm thinking about it as well. And, and that, you know, this is a, a net positive development. And uh, like you said, these systems are not perfect um, for a number of reasons. They can be, you know, the, the, the caps that are, are created. Uh, can uh, you know are typically meant to go go down over time. They can not go down quickly enough, or sometimes they can just be increased. You know, out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. You know, plans to retire uh, or permanently you know eliminate uh, uh, credits uh, by future years can be reneged upon. Like, there's a lot of things that you know could could change. But like I said before, directionally, this is exactly kind of where we want to see this going. And I hope that that I think this breach of the hundred dollar per ton. Uh, level is is an important kind of psychological barrier that we need to get get through for companies to really make these sorts of decarbonization changes um, and and start doing so soon. You know, to to think about it in terms of carbon removal and some of the carbon removal, um, you know, companies that you work with, Naeem, I feel like the obviously the vast majority of these kind of credits aren't being satisfied with you know, what we might call carbon removal or durable carbon removal or some of the stuff that um, we have, we spend a lot of time talking about on our show. But I, I guess I'm hopeful or or I want to be hopeful that this kind of continuing, uh, continuous price increase will lead to more funding for carbon removal and hopefully actual 
more climate impact from carbon removal projects if these, you know, government mandated prices are going to continue to well not the prices but the, if you know if this if this compliance market is going to continue to have its price go up and companies are going to be continue to incentivize in investing in ways to decarbonize um you know is that is it naive to be hopeful that that some of that funding is going to help jumpstart carbon removal potentially you know in Europe well i think it offers an important kind of abstract market signal for carbon removal I don't know that it means a whole lot for carbon removal in the near term, right? I mean, while there are kind of efforts ongoing right now in Europe to develop, you know, a voluntary certification framework for carbon removal, right now it's not possible to use carbon removal uh, for compliance within the EU emission trading system. Mm. So, you know, right now, I don't think this is going to have any near-term impact other than saying to CDR developers in the future, you know, if if that changes and if CDR is, you know, more prevalent in some of these compliance systems like ETS, uh, that there's a chance they might get upwards of $100 a ton. And so I think that's good. I think if I'm a carbon removal company, that's uh, I'm looking at that positively and, and that's great. I just don't know if it converts in a way that benefits CDR anytime in a year. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. We had uh, one analysis um, that I'll link in the show uh, notes that found that the CCUS industry globally could hit a record amount of investment of uh, $6.4 billion, or it did hit that much last year. Um, and that was almost double the record from the, the record, which is from the previous year. So that um, they, th this one analyst basically found that the investment in CCUS is high and growing. And so I just wanted to ask you, what do you think that implies? Well, I know you know this, but CDR and a lot of the analysts out there bunch these things together and drives me mm -hmm. nuts. CDR is not a subsector of CCUS, right? That's, that's an important distinction. Um, CCUS does not result in negative emissions, but I think CCUS will do quite well in, a, in, in an environment like this. Um, I think one challenge that, that CCUS has is that it's that the supply of the like kind of baseline supply of CCUS in Europe, not even not talking about CDR here, is is relatively small, right? If you're thinking about an economy the size of Europe, CCUS supply is is relatively small. And so while the you know carbon price that we're seeing in Europe will benefit technologies like point source carbon capture and storage, um, CCS, which which at scale is typically like it's typically lower than hundred dollars a ton. You know, there's there's just a lack of kind of baseline investment in CCS to build from. Mm. So when it when kind of thinking about the supply or how some of this impacts supply, uh, yeah, it'll get there. And I think you know this investment you're talking about is good for CCUS, and there'll be an increase in supply as a result of being able to do more with that capital. Uh, but in the context of Europe, when we think about this carbon price and and the ETS and, and all this, you know, there's still a lot of catching up to do in Europe around CCS in general. And so I think they'll, well, it'll be, I think, sluggish at first because there's not a lot to build from around CCS in Europe. And I don't think it will really have that much of an impact on CDR until CDR is really considered a viable pathway within something like the EU emissions trading system. 
Mm-hmm. So I don't know, not to be a wet blanket, this is all good news. Uh, but I think it's going to take some time for it to kind of convert into new supply for CCUS uh, in a meaningful kind of capacity in Europe, which is an important economic block. It's still, you know, it's massive. It's the largest economic block taken together. Um, and uh, and I think that the impact on CDR is therefore even further delayed beyond that. Hmm. It sounds like, you know, what I'm taking away from what you're saying is I think a theme that comes up from time to time in our business shows, which is that the theoretical demand for carbon removal is quite high when you base it off of the de- the size of carbon markets, the growth of carbon markets, and, you know, the related investments in this sort of general space. There's clearly, you know, a demand both for the, the actual removals and a demand for companies that can be invested in. Um, that can successfully sell those removals, but we're still at a stage where, you know, the industry is struggling to mature to the point where it can meet that demand. And so you still see billions going into, you know, traditional forestry offsets and, um, maybe even more, even, even more dry powder, as they say, ready to go towards carbon removal when, you know, the techniques and the companies come about that are really are worth it. And, one one more thing I wanted to touch on while we're talking about um, while we're talking about the um, European market is you know some something that comes up a lot um, you know in these articles when you're reading about it is there's always you know they they manage to get this quote from the the environmental group um, or the you know the the politician who might say well this system allows people to pollute allows them to continue to pollute so I mean. I feel like you're pretty, you have a pretty sophisticated knowledge of like industrial policy. You know, what what do you make of that? I mean, obviously it'd be great if everyone could just cut their emissions, but at the same time, I don't know if Europe's ready to just not have cement and steel being made or, you know, have the lights on in places where they haven't built enough renewables. So, I mean, what, what do you make of that argument? Is there, is there truth to that? Well, you know, I, I think the risk with something like any kind of compliance market that exists out there is that if it's not well regulated and if, you know, it is not stringent enough, there are a lot of opportunities for polluters to continue polluting in a way that doesn't get us anywhere near our, our climate goals. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think what, what folks need to do who are in positions and in government to that oversee these projects is just, you know, we need to make sure this doesn't happen. We need to make sure that if there are trading caps in, in place, that they are appropriately stringent and that they are, these caps are coming down. That's the whole point of, of a mm. compliance market. Um, you know, we are seeing kind of continued increase in the price to continue polluting, right? It, 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 if, um, if companies, you know, anticipate, well, you know, this is a hundred dollars a ton right now, but it'll probably go back down to, you know, fifty or sixty dollars a ton next year. Um, they might not be incentivized to kind of make some of those uh, changes. So there, there's a number of, you know, policy tools that can be used, that can and and regulatory tools that can be used to try to try to make sure that these markets are stringent enough that it really really enforces kind of the industry to, uh, to de- or incentivizes industry to decarbonize. And I think a lot of companies, you know, are looking at this price per ton and they're thinking do we want to continue meeting our obligations by purchasing compliance credits that become scarcer and scarcer every Mm. year and appear to be trending upwards like 
you know, at a certain point, it's going to make sense to start rapidly decarbonizing. And if I'm then, I'm looking for like low hanging fruit to decarbonize my operations for well under a hundred dollars a ton. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to get serious about that. Um, but, you know, I think what's, what's lacking in a market like this is, some, is the price certainty, because that's just not built into something like this. And so, you know, that can be hard to, 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 to manage. And I think if you have, you know, the right operating principles around something like this that uh, ensures a level of stringency that, that generally sends a signal to the market, this is going to get more and more expensive as time goes on. There might be fluctuations in the price here, but this is going to get more expensive as time goes on. And we are going to continue like lowering caps and we're going to be serious about, um, you know, eliminating portions of these credits over time. And we're going to actually do what we say we're going to do. You know, if, if, if regulators and policymakers, you know, are serious about that, then this can work. Mm. But if they're not, then I think the folks on the environmental side that look at this with some degree of skepticism, you know, they have, uh, they have a, they have a, a strong argument as well. So it just depends on how these things are implemented over time. Yeah. It's all about implementation. So what, what I hear a lot of people in government say, and the devil's in the details. And it, you know, I recall a, a talk from Klaus Lackner, and I think he said that, you know, eventually DAC can set the price for carbon because once you have a, a, a cost per ton from DAC, anything below that, um, if it's cheaper than, you know, spending say $200 a ton uh, for DAC, you'll decarbonize that way. And so that's, I guess, the promise of a mature CDR uh, industry, which hopefully comes around one day, is that, you know, companies will have the choice, companies, governments, whoever will have the choice to say, do I want to pay, you know, that cost uh, to permanently sequester? Or if it's anything below that, I'll just decarbonize that way. And so that would be that would be the hope and that that's how it turns out. So one more business headline that I'd love to talk with you about before I let you go. Um, just when we thought the climate SPAC boom was over, uh, Lanzatech, which is a company that makes products uh, or is working to make products and fuel out of captured CO2, announced that it became the first uh, carbon capture company to go public, which is kind of a big deal. Um, so did you did you see this announcement? And what do you what do you make of that? And do you have any thoughts about Lanza Tech and what they're trying to do? Yeah, I, I noticed that as well, and I think it's 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 cool to see any you know climate tech company get an increase in investment. I think um, I think this this transaction like landed I think it was like two hundred and forty million dollars for the company, and mm. and I think they're going to you know deploy some of that or all of that I guess to expand its. Um, carbon capture and transformation technologies and they have a number of interesting partnerships and in uh, in the space that I, I think I think are you know interesting to look at um yeah and listen I think this is great and I think it's potentially a huge boost of confidence for companies in the carbon management field um generally I, I don't know what it pretends for carbon markets per se but um you know I think it'll actually be an interesting test for how a company involved in carbon management will navigate the pressures of being a publicly traded company, right? Up until now, mm -hmm. these companies are, are privately held. Some of them have seen significant, you know, significant investments in private equity deals and all of that. But this will be the first time that we see a company that's in, involved, you know, um, tangentially in a space that we care about. Uh, that's that's a publicly traded company and is subject to the pressures of being 
a publicly traded company, right? This is the case with many public companies. It can be really hard to stay focused on the long-term view. And they are often trying to meet these kind of short-term quarterly expectations of investors. And, and so that will, I think, impact the types of projects and risks that the company is willing to take on. And so, you know, I don't know a whole lot about Lanza Tech. I, aside from some of the kind of interesting partnerships they have in the carbon utilization world, but I think a lot of companies are going to be watching the space and watching Lanza Tech and seeing what happens and learning from this experience in the coming years as we see more and more uh, companies involved in the broader carbon management field, um, you know, attract uh, a broader array of, of investment, especially in public markets. And I think that's, um, that's going to be interesting to watch and, and see how, how it changes their trajectory as a, as a company and what that means for the broader field. Yeah, what you're saying is is really interesting, and I and I agree. It's going to be interesting to watch what it means for a company in this space, which is, you know, we often hear the word nascent uh, get get thrown around a lot. Um, there's not a lot of deployment. There's a lot of research and R and D, but less deployment. So, what does it mean for uh, this company to, like you said, face the pressures of? being publicly traded. And on one hand, I mean, the optimist in me wants to say, you know, this is a show of confidence. They're ready to get out there and deploy and start having revenue. But then again, um, there's been so much, you, you know, the the whole SPAC thing seems to have generated a lot of less serious companies getting um, money by going publicly traded as well um, and not necessarily working out and fizzling quickly. Maybe not so much in the climate space so much, but um so anyway, that's more. This is where we need Susan here to to kind of spell it out. Um, but hopefully, it's a show of confidence to say like we're ready to actually kind of deploy. And a lot of the coverage I was reading does, you know, they I guess they're they seem to be maybe a little bit of a bigger company than some of the other startup. Well, they're not a startup necessarily, but than some of the startups that we talk about. And they have a lot of different um, segments within their business. You know, they have a, a fuel. You know, working on fuel, working on um, making ethanol. Uh, making tires, products, or excuse me, plastics, um, chemicals, all sorts of stuff. So kind of a more, maybe more sophisticated business and hopefully those all hit and, and work out. But yeah, so, something to look out for and went under the radar a little bit. But the fact that there's a carbon capture company being publicly traded, I think is maybe a bit of a sign of the times in a few ways and and we'll see how it goes and we'll cover it on the show. So Naeem, thank you so much for joining us. It was great talking to you. It's always a treat when we get to have you uh, get to expound more, you know, at length uh, when it's just one-on-one. -on -one. So thank you so much. And we'll talk to you next time. Thanks so much. Asa. All right, everybody. Welcome back to Carbon Removal Newsroom here for our second segment. This is Asa Kamer again, uh, normally the producer of the show, but I'm here to host this week. We have a special guest joining our panel, and it's the Deputy Commissioner of Alaska's Department of Natural Resources, John Crowther. John, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, well, thank you. Thank you for having me. We're uh, working on some exciting legislation in Alaska, and so look forward to sharing a little, little bit about it. 
Great. And so um, the reason you're on is that Alaska's governor, Mike Dunleavy, has proposed a package of a, of a couple bills um, to expand the state's ability to store carbon via both forestry projects and underground storage um, of CO2 uh, if this legislation is, is passed. So Deputy Commissioner, could you tell us a little bit about these policies and what is included in this legislation? Yeah, ha happy to. And I think, um, you know, the governor's real focus and interest on this comes from, you know, Alaska is a natural resource state, you know, whether it's our fisheries, you know, which go back, you know, in, in decades and in fact, almost centuries in terms of active commercial management and one of the real issues of, of, of our state and statehood and, and our uh, time as a territory, obviously the Alaska Native people, the subsistence use of those resources way goes back way beyond that. Uh, mining a part of our, our history, both for gold and other, uh, other natural resources, oil and gas development, a, a mainstay of our economy today, but also the use of our natural resources for recreation, tourism, major driver in Alaska. And so I think, you know, the governor is, is a resource-minded guy. He's, he's grown up in it. He's lived it, worked in it. And he's been approached by folks across the country and across the world about the carbon management, you know, the use of, of natural and geologic resources to manage carbon. And you know, so there's just, there's a natural fit in Alaska of making our resources available for any and all development. And that includes the development of projects to manage carbon. And so that's, that's really the, the thrust, the impetus behind this, um, you know, and, and, you know, naturally as a resource owner, we want to make money from our resources to use, you know, as a government, as, as a sovereign, with a uh, fiduciary and fiscal responsibility to the people of Alaska, we want to use that money to fund everything from schools to roads to public safety. And so we, we are really excited about, about moving into this space more actively. And uh, that's, that's the motivation behind the legislation. Great. And I think there's a couple bills involved in this proposal. Can you kind of break down what they are and what they're trying to do? Yeah. So I'll, I'll start with what we're calling our offset bill, but really it's making the state's lands uh, and resources and, you know, our submerged lands, the waters that we own and manage available for carbon projects. And we see that happening in a couple of different ways, but we really see it. What we want to do is have an open, flexible framework legislation that allows project developers, you know, for, for typical and traditional forestry projects, but also for novel projects to come to the state of Alaska and say, we need some land, we need some forested land, we need some offshore land, you know, we need access to this to develop a project. And for us to be able to enter into those agreements, issue leases, issue disposals of, of those state resources so that project developers can stand up their own projects. And similarly, we, uh, want to pursue those kind of projects potentially on, on our state-owned lands but with you know state expertise state agencies like our division of forestry is very experienced in managing our state forest resources our division of mining land and water responsible for general land use leasing um, and those so those divisions have capacity to facilitate participate in uh, setting up projects that are state driven and so the, the, that legislation our carbon offsets bill as we call it uh, is meant to enable that whole suite of projects. And, you know, we've, we've seen private landowners in Alaska and around the country pursuing these kind of projects on lands. We've seen in Alaska, we have Alaska Native corporations that are established by Congress, but owned by the Alaska Native people for the benefit of the Alaska Native people. And they also have large land holdings. We've seen them successfully do these projects in Alaska. So 
similarly, we want to make, make state lands available there. So that's uh, the first main piece of the package. The second piece is associated with geologic sequestration, uh, our, what we're calling our CCUS bill, carbon capture, utilization, and storage. And so similarly, that bill is intended to make the state's geologic resources available for project developers. So, you know, if you want to lease subsurface lands for injection and storage of carbon in the long term, the state lands are available to you. And, you know, just like I mentioned for our surface lands and our waters, we, we see all sorts of existing uses. We see all sorts of subsurface development today in Alaska, primarily our oil and gas resources. And those same geologic uh, characteristics that make us an oil and gas, you know, highly uh, prospective oil and gas province also create very significant reservoirs uh, for storage of, of carbon dioxide. And so we wanna make those state lands available as a core part of the CCUS bill. We also wanna put in a regulatory framework. So whatever your land ownership, whether it's on a state-owned land, a private-owned land, there's a, a strong regulatory framework for you know, safety and well, you know, well, well uh, regulation, reservoir management, reservoir uh, safety, that, that we have a regulatory framework there to enable projects. And so, so that legislation similarly, uh, we, we essentially wanna throw open the doors and invite project developers an opportunity in. All right, thank you for breaking that down. So, you know, one thing I that stood out to me um, reading a bit about uh, this this proposal is that on both the sort of biogenic and the geologic side, the theoretical capacity for carbon storage in Alaska is quite big. Um, you know, I was reading that I think a majority or some large share of forestry credits that go into California's cap and trade system are from Alaskan are forests in Alaska. And also that it, it, there's just one region um, where there'd been some estimates for underground storage in Alaska that found there's almost uh, 20 gigatons of capacity there, theoretically. Um, so I, I think that really stood out to me is that the, you know, compared to, you know, there's a lot of states that could probably pursue something like this and they might be able to have enough uh, capacity to offset, let's say their own emissions, but the the scale, the potential scale in Alaska is so much higher. I mean, I think you could end up negating far more than Alaska's own um, emissions. So, I mean, what do you think it would it will take? It sounds like you you're you're at sort of an early stage, but it's also very ambitious. Uh, what do you think it will take to get to you know some of these bigger scale numbers on both the forestry and the sort of geologic uh, scale on for both of those? Yeah, I, I think that's that's exactly right. You know, we're in a in a as we view it, a kind of an envious position, right? Where we have yet again a a resource that that the the broader world wants. And so, as you mentioned on the forestry and the you know biologic offset side. Uh, it is our understanding that historically a significant amount of the, the credits in the California Air Resources Board market, the regulated market there, have been in Alaska. I think there's, you know, and I think there's some limitations on public lands being eligible for that program. Um, so, so, you know, I'm not sure if we would see state participation there, but, but in, the, in the voluntary market for offsets and credits, you know, we see if the market continues to grow, we have a resource that people are all around the country or all around the world are going to want to participate in. Um, you know, and I, I would just note for your listeners, you know, you may think, you know, and this is something I'm learning about, but, you know, you may think, well, Alaska is a large, heavily forested natural area. It's already sequestering a lot of carbon. What are we going to do different that's going to sequester more carbon? 
And, you know, from the perspective of somebody living here, you know, we have millions of acres that have both been killed by what we call the spruce bark beetle. So, you know, pest infestation and also millions of acres of, of wildfire, you know, a million sometimes in a given year or more in a year. Mm. And so we have yeah. large areas that have been affected by wildfire, sometimes very severely that limit and slow regrowth, standing, standing uh, pest and beetle kill. And so an incentive and a, and a drive to reforest, bring those areas back into productivity could really expand the forested areas in Alaska by literally millions and millions of acres. And so, um, you know, that's, you know, when you look at, across the entire U.S. West or you look across Canada, there's that similar kind of scale at a national level, but we really can bring it to bear just from a state level. And so that's, um, as you mentioned, you know, and from our perspective, you know, offering those resources has the chance to bring revenue and wealth into our state for our people. And so we, we really think of that as a win-win-win. Uh, and similarly on the geologic uh, sequestration side, you know, we have a few industrial activities in Alaska that may be interested in pursuing capture at their sources. Um, but we certainly have, have reservoirs that, you know, in, in the event that people are trying to manage and, and ship carbon around the world, we'd be a premier destination for those for, for injection and long-term storage. So, so yeah, I, I think you're right on that, that we are in a kind of unique position of offering our storage, not just for our own use, but, but for others uh, around, around the country to be sure, but really around the world. Cool. And so for our listeners, can you just, just give a, a bit of an idea. So if you have a forested area that's been burned or degraded by um, the pine beetle, or, you know, there's been some other dis uh, disturbance to where some sort of restoration could lead to reforestation and uh, potentially access to carbon credits. What kind of activities on the ground are, what does that actually look like? Are the people out there just planting saplings? Is there more to it that, that to kind of enhance what nature's already doing? Yeah, well, and I would never discourage any of your listeners from coming to visit Alaska because it is truly an exquisite and beautiful place. But, you know, I, I haven't lived there, grown up there most of my life. Um, you know, we have large parts, even in the, the readily accessible, you know, areas right by communities that have thousands and thousands of acres of dead standing trees due mm -hmm. to due to beetles. And the state expends money to try and thin and prevent that wildfire risk from those non growing non active, but but you know, dead in place trees. But the cost is so high to clear them that, you know, we, we just, you know, from a view shed, viewscape place that, you know, they certainly don't look nice, but, you know, they are, they are part of the natural cycle. But, you know, from ecological productivity, wildlife habitat, you know, those are not, not thriving prime areas. And with the increased forest fire risk, they're at risk of, you know, whether you're looking at it from a carbon emissions perspective or a damage to the soil, damage to the, you know, mycology and ecology there. Um, they, they just, they pose a lot of quantitative and qualitative impacts to, to the state. And so that um, the, the activities to remedy that is in the first instance, clearing those trees, whether it's you know, up where forest fire has been and there's, there's burned or consumed trees or whether where there's that standing deadfall. You know, the, historically, there's been an effort just to clear it to reduce the wildfire risk for further damage. When you go to look into reforestation, you know, managing and cultivating a forest, you know, that is stuff as simple as planting trees, but it is, you know, planting, thinning, managing, 
so that those saplings can grow up. You know, when you have a totally cleared area, you want to make, you know, you can uh, encourage the growth of certain kinds of species. You know, in, in Alaska, our growing season is relatively short. And so you, you know, and I'm not a, a, a ecologist or, or timber manager, but, you know, many of the initial succession species are very, you know, small, uh, you know, fast growing, but, but limited kind of ultimate growth scale. So you may, in a burned out or, or cleared out area, you may go a hundred years before you start to see the subsequent species that are, you know, large scale um, carbon sequestering and, you know, and, and habitat promoting trees. And so being able to actively plant, cultivate those trees earlier in the cycle speeds up those ecological benefits from creating habitat speeds up the carbon benefits from, from enhanced sequestration sooner. And so that's, you know, having a, a, a motive to get people out in, in Alaska doing that is really exciting. Cool. So sort of speeding up the natural process a bit. Yeah, that's right. So you mentioned that in addition to, you know, sort of traditional forestry, that this part of the aim of this would be to open up the use of public lands for other novel techniques. Um, is there anything specifically that you're thinking of or um, that that's, you know, that's behind that? Or have, have there been project developers or startups that have that you've heard from that have said, you know, we want to do this, you know, beyond planting trees, some other sort of novel form of, uh, of uh, carbon removal? Yeah, so that, you know, there are, you know, and we're, if, if folks have more ideas, we're always happy to hear hear more and, and newer, but you know, one yeah, of that's the, a call to our list. Sorry, I don't interrupt, but that, that's a call to our listeners. Let's get, get some information <laughs> of these folks and yeah. uh, you know, may, we can be matchmaker here. Yeah. Come on up um, from, I, I think the governor has been really interested in the offshore potential in, in the sense of, you know, and it's still, it, there's other parts of the country that are looking at it, but the growth of, of kelps and other, you know, aquatic species that are very carbon dense but also potentially have other beneficial uses. We've seen a, a, an aquaculture growth in Alaska recently, different kinds of shellfish cultivation, kelp cultivation for both food products and other beneficial uses. But adding carbon to that list is, is a really exciting part of, of this effort too. You know, and you know, that could be localized benefits, you know, small projects in our existing communities that, that have that kind of ocean interface, you know, whether it's fishing or aquaculture today, just another part of that to, to boost those economies and that local industry or really large scale. Um, you know, we have, we have more coastline, more state-owned, you know, submerged land uh, than the, in the entire rest of the U.S. And, you know, folks who want to fact check that, just look at Alaska, see how, you know, our Aleutian chain stretches out way into the ocean each one of those is surrounded by state-owned waters. And so, you know, you know that, that potential is, is nascent, is developing, but I think is, is part of this, is just an, another exciting piece of this. Great. And I know that you mentioned mining. I know there's some folks working on using the mine tailings uh, to, you know, treat them chemically to accelerate their natural sequestration of CO2. So mm. there's, yeah, possibilities are endless or the deadfall. I mean, there's a few startups here in California where I live that are trying to take the, um, you know, deadfall and uh, turn it into biochar or other, mm -hmm. you know, forms of, uh, you know, some sort of carbon sequestration with that. So, yeah, I, I hope folks, if you have good ideas, get up to, you know, connect with these guys in the Alaska government if this, if this goes through. So speaking more on the, um, 
geologic side, I just wanted, you know, if you could just give us a bit of an idea. I mean, we know that Alaska is a big uh, oil and gas producing state. And, um, you know, something I hear a lot of when it comes to the um, underground storage of, of, you know, CO2 is that we'll need the expertise of this industry, that we'll need the workers, engineers, et cetera. So is, is that part of the part of the impetus here? And, and what do you think to the, what, how do you think about the criticism of this whole idea that it gives a lifeline to a, an oil and gas industry that's contributing to climate change? I mean, how do you guys sort of navigate that, um, that dynamic? Yeah. Well, and, and taking the, the second part of that, that first, you know, from, from our perspective, you know, we've, we've worked really hard to provide a, a national commodity, you know, oil and uh, oil has been valuable for, a, you know, consumer reasons for, um, you know, health and safety for the expansion of industrial growth, the economy for a long time. Alaska's contributed to that. We've been, we've been proud to contribute to that. And, you know, part of, as part of our economy and part of our hope for continued development in Alaska, we hope to continue to do that. And, you know, I, I know, you know, I know personally, and I know from a kind of a, an administration perspective, there's, there's people out there in Alaska and then in, in our broader national discussion who, who really disagree with that. But, you know, that's, that's part of our life, lifeblood and ethos. So, you know, we don't, we don't view this legislation as at all inconsistent with that. You know, what we, uh, what we are really excited about it from is that there's, there's people all across the spectrum, but a, there's a significant consensus that says the more energy we can produce with less carbon emissions, the better. Wherever you fall on the, the politics or the preferences, you know, that, that kind of managing the emissions associated with these fuels that, that consumers continue to demand is a good thing. And so, you know, we see if we want to keep being in the fuels business from the oil perspective, and we're offering this carbon uh, opportunity, both from the geologic sequestration, but also from the offsets perspective, you know, that, that just enhances what, what we bring to the table. And so if, if we're in a world where we're producing oil in Alaska, and we're sequestering carbon, both from those oil operations directly, but also a importing carbon from all around the world from the consumption of, of oil and other fuels, you know, we, we'd love to provide both those services. So we see them, uh, we see them working in tandem for the benefit of Alaskans and, and for the, you know, in the sense of lowering uh, global emissions from, from wherever they're sourced from, you know, to the benefit, like we've seen from our development of our other resources, benefits to all of our export markets and, and the broader national and world community too. So it's a, uh, you know, we, like I keep saying, and I know it, I, 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 it is my job and I do it because I love it to pitch Alaska, but it, we really see it as a, as a win-win. Um, and to circle back very quickly to the first part of your question, you know, that part of this, you know, it's, it's not why we're doing the legislation, but I, it's why the legislation I think has the potential to succeed is that, you know, we have trained, highly skilled engineers, field workers, you know, everything from welders and truck drivers, which is a really hard job in Alaska to do well, to do safely, to, you know, geoscientists that know Alaska, that know our rocks, know our resources, know our surface. And so they're a big asset for a program like this succeeding. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, if we have people in that industry who are working hard, making money, and this gives them another opportunity to do more work, make more money, that's, that's great for our employees and great for our economy. So, yeah. Cool. So one last question for you. Um, you know, I don't know how much you can speak towards 
you know, the politics of this whole thing. But obviously, this is just proposed legislation. You hope to see it passed, but it has to go through the legislature. Obviously, there well, there may be changes. You know, that's often how it works. So, how do you see the process from here towards you know between here and getting it passed? What what kind of challenges might there be? What kind of education are you are you hoping to do? Um, what are you kind of foreseeing with that? Yeah, well, we 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 foresee doing a lot of education and a lot of you know meetings, briefings, formal hearings, informal meetings, you know, just about everything to share, in a sense, the good news story that we're hearing about these opportunities. Um, and I, I think our biggest challenge, just to, just as you said, it's it's you know when you hear about these things, they're very new to a lot of people. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about you know emissions and carbon and and those kind of things. You know that. People have different perspectives, you know, across the political spectrum on those. But when you start to talk about, well, we're going to do a sequestration project and generate carbon offset credits, and then, you know, the state can benefit from those, and we're going to monetize them in this way, and they'll be traded on an exchange. That's brand new to people, and uh, so you know, a lot of explanation, education, uh, talking out, and understanding some of the unique uh, dynamics of Alaska. You know, in, in Alaska a tremendous number of people actively use the natural environment for subsistence foods, you know, to, to get out into the, into the wild, hunt fish. Uh, people do that recreationally, people tour to, to do that. You know, are these kind of projects gonna affect those uses? Um, you know, th th those kind of considerations that people wanna investigate, know the answers to, uh, are, are just gonna all be part of the discussion. Um, Great. Well, listen, I will let you go and hopefully you guys can pass this legislation. And once you're doing the implementation phase, you can come back and tell us how it's going. <laughs> yes, sir. We'll, we'll hopefully be back soon. Awesome. All right. Well, this has been Alaska Department of Natural Resources Deputy Commissioner John Crowther, and you've been listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom, and we'll talk to you guys next week. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to Carbon Removal Newsroom. If you like the show, the best way you can help us is by giving us a great rating and review in Apple Podcasts, following the show on Spotify, and by sharing the show on social media. Tell your friends and help us spread the word about what's happening in the world of carbon removal.